Well, it's good to see you all tonight. So glad that you're here with us. Um, We are going to be doing something tonight that is, uh, we're going to be doing something a little different than how Wednesday nights normally function. Um, Wednesday nights, normally we work pretty much just straight through a passage of scripture. Uh, We've been working through the book of Romans for this school year. So we've we've been working through Romans last semester and this semester. And this semester brings us to Romans chapter 9. And if you are not familiar with that passage, that is totally fine. If you are, you, uh, you might know why. Uh, t- tonight we might, we're doing things a little bit differently. Tonight we are not going to be walking through this verse by verse. Um, we are actually going to take the idea that Romans 9 is getting across. And because it is so striking and confusing, a little mysterious, and even a little disturbing, honestly, um, I want to anticipate questions that every person is going to have when you hear this kind of stuff. So we're going to do things a little bit differently tonight in that way. But uh, I remember one of my, my earliest memories uh, of, uh, of a Carowinds. I don't know if anyone knows what Carowinds is. Carowinds is... Um, it's basically like a dinky version of Six Flags that's in uh, the northern part of South Carolina. So I grew up in North Carolina. Carowinds was all we had. And one of my earliest memories of, of Carowinds was going there with my girlfriend in the fifth grade. Uh, I don't know if any of y'all ever had a relationship in elementary school. It's the weirdest thing ever. Like, we dated for, I think, like four and a half years, and we had like two conversations, like, one to say in the beginning, we're going to start dating. And then like one at the end to say, we should break up. And like never talked in between. We just like looked at each other from across the cafeteria. I mean, what do you talk about when you're in third grade, you know? Um, and so anyways, we, we were coming near the end of our relationship at this time. It's fifth grade and uh, wanted to take her to Carowinds to go ride some roller coasters. And so you can't drive when you're, when you're that young, and so your parents drive you, so my dad took me, and he's having to follow us around the whole time. So we get there, and there's this, uh, there's this really, really old, rickety roller coaster there called Thunder Road, and there's one that goes forwards, and then right next to it, it's the same track, but it goes backwards. So, uh, so we did the one that goes backwards, and as you're going up the, the first incline to go down the first hill, there's always signs, like, as you're going up, like, Suppose giving like safety instructions, but really they're, it's just like they're trying to be funny. I was like scared to death. And so I was taking these instructions like dead serious. So like the first one says like, clench the front of your seat. So I'm like, okay. So I'm clenching in front of my seat. <laughs> and then it's like, put your head back against the seat. So I'm like, put my head back in the seat. And then the last one's like, grit your teeth. Here it comes. And so I like literally just start like, I don't even know what grit means. But I like just start like moving my teeth. I'm like, mm, as I'm going over the hill. And, uh, and I was freaking out. I felt like, cause you know, like it's an old roller coaster. And there was this like, there was this rumor that supposedly if you were in the very back cart when you run, went around the first turn, if you and, the, and your partner in the seat like both took all of your weight and pushed to the left, it would actually pop out of the railing for a second and then pop back in. We didn't try that, but I would just the, the fact that that's even a, a supposed rumor freaked me out. I felt like I was out of control. But the great thing is, is roller coasters, 99% of the time, I know there are exceptions. If you go to the fair and pay like 99 cents to ride this thing they put up in 12 hours, that's your fault if it breaks. But Carowinds, they're trustworthy. So, uh, you know, 
I felt out of control, but really was, everything was under control. It was just fine. There was going to be dips and turns that I wasn't expecting, but it was going to be fine. And so tonight, honestly, we entering into this idea that we're going to be talking about, it's going to feel like a roller coaster. You're, you're going to feel turns and, and, and see inclines, and you, you don't know how far the drop-off is, um, but we're going to be fine. So what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about the doctrine of election. Um, this may be something that some of you are somewhat familiar with. Some of you may not be. Some of you may have heard of the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, and some of you may not, and that is totally fine. But that is, that is what this passage is, is talking about, the doctrine of election, of God choosing certain people for salvation. And, you know, I think one of the... Th- the first thing when, when someone says that, um, asking the question of like, so does God choose us or do we choose God? I think a lot of people just think that feels like a kind of a, just a dumb question, like a, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, it doesn't matter and you'll never know. You know, it's like, well, does it really matter who chose who and can we really know? And I think it does matter and I think that we can know. Scripture... Um, gives us a lot of information about this. So tonight what I want to do is I want to really ask three questions. I want to ask, what does the Bible teach about election? What are some of the common objections to election? And then third, why in the world does election even matter at all? Like why, why, why is it significant? Why is it included in this wonderful, amazing book of Romans following this beautiful chapter 8, and why should we care today, right now? So um, a lot of what I'm sharing with you tonight comes almost straight from uh, a commentary that I read, an appendix, uh, an appendix in the back um, from a few uh, commentators, and so um, a lot of what I'm saying tonight is not original to me. So. so the first question that we have to ask is, honestly, what does the Bible say about election? Now, tonight, in this one session, I'm not going to be able to tell you everything that it says. I'm not going to be able to tell you both sides. I'm just going to try to present to you the basic tenets of what the Bible says about election. So there's two main things that the Bible says about election. One is that everything happens, everything that happens is under God's direction. And two, parallel with that, is that all choices are free acts for which we are responsible. So we've got both of those running side by side, okay? So everything, happen, everything that happens is under God's direction. Ephesians 1, 11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So it means that God performs all things and that he brings to bear his power on all circumstances and he conforms all events to be a part of his master plan. So that includes little things, like in Proverbs 16 when it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So his plan includes little things. It also includes bad things. Isaiah 45 says, I am the Lord, there is no other, I bring prosperity, and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all of these things. So evil was not God's original plan, but he weaves trouble and pain and difficulty together for his glory and for our good. But his plan also includes our sins. I mean, you think about Genesis 50, talking about Joseph, this guy who got sold into slavery by his brothers. And uh, at the end of this, 
that Joseph says, you, talking to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God meant it for good. So even evil, even sin is not outside of God's plan. He has a intended purpose for it. So I know that's a, those, that's a tough pill to swallow, but that's, that's just that's what we have presented before us. So everything that happens is under God's direction. Then also all choices are free acts for which we are responsible. So in Romans 9, the passage that we're, that we're directly looking at tonight, is, there's this almost seeming contradiction going on. So you, if you've if you got Romans 9 open, look at verse 16. Talking about salvation, it says, It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So the whole, really first two-thirds of, of Romans 9 make it seem like this is entirely of God, end of story, period, that's it. But then once you fast forward and get to the end of chapter 9, in verses 31 and 32, it says, Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So you've got this whole argument saying, basically, God chooses some for salvation, But then at the end it says, Paul's sad and upset about these Jewish people who should have believed but rejected. So there is, we see both of these together. So this seems like a contradiction. And either Paul is is an idiot and he's putting two contradictory things right back to back. Or it's like these two truths work together like two gears inside of a clock that, that go opposite. So you've got God's divine sovereignty his ability to elect and to choose and, and to be over all things. You've got that gear turning and then you've got this other gear that seems in contradiction that we have, we make free choices. Like we're not robots, right? I mean, you, you chose to show up tonight. You, I mean, we, we're making choices freely. You've got these two things going together and they don't rub against each other and contradict. They actually allow the clock to work. They actually allow God's plan of salvation to function. And so we'll tease that out a little bit. So what this tells us that these two things run together is that God's plan works through our choices. Not around them or in spite of them. So God works out his perfect will through our willing actions. So we've got to hold both of those together. Now, that's kind of just generally God's sovereignty over all things. But when it comes specifically to salvation, to us, uh, coming to know Christ. What what does the Bible say about election in terms of that? Well, basically it says this, that people who choose God do so strictly because God has opened their hearts. And on the other hand, people who fail to choose God do so strictly because they have closed their hearts. Okay? So, um, what this tells us is that only God is responsible for our salvation. Only God is responsible for our salvation. If you look in verse 11 of chapter 9, it's referring to these twins in Genesis that were born at the same time, and yet one was not chosen to be a part of, the, uh, of Abraham's descendants, the spiritual blessings that would come, and one was. And it says in verse 11, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that the purpose or that God's purpose of election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. We have to 
we have to wrestle with, like, what is the other side of the coin? To say, like in Romans 3, no one seeks God, what does that logically conclude? It means that our fallen nature is free to make choices, but that we are bound to our heart's desires. It's like our heart has taste buds in our fallen nature, but, but the taste buds find God repulsive. We're free to make a choice, but we will not choose God. So he must initiate it. He must be responsible for it. I mean, it's like, it's like we're in this helpless sleep and God wakes us up. It's like we're in a coma and God brings us back to awakeness and reality. So only God is responsible for our salvation, but only we are responsible for our condemnation. Okay, this is, this is hard to hold together, but please just track with me. Look in verses 21 through 24 of chapter 9. It says this, and this is one of the parts where if you're not already mad or like on the verge of tears because you're scared of who God is and what's happening, you're probably going to, it's going to happen. So uh, verse 21 says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, listen to this, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So what we see here, we see vessels prepared for destruction, and we see vessels prepared for glory. There is a huge difference between the two, a huge difference. The vessels prepared for glory, it specifically says that God prepared them and that he did it beforehand. When you look at the vessels prepared for wrath, it doesn't say that God did it. And it doesn't say that it happened beforehand. That's not an accident. There's a distinction here. And we we have to see that. So here's really what we have. You've got two opposite errors here. On this side, you've got hyper-Calvinism, which basically says that God prepares some for glory and God prepares some for destruction. But there's nothing you can do about it. That's just how it rolls. But then on this side, you've got the opposite error, which is Pelagianism, which says we prepare ourselves for glory. We have that choice. Or we have the choice to prepare ourselves for destruction. Neither of those is what Scripture presents to us about how God has designed the plan to work. What you see in Scripture is a middle way. You see that God prepares some for glory and others prepare themselves for destruction. So if anyone is saved, it is because of the mercy and choice of God. Mercy, okay? Gift, free, undeserved. We don't deserve it. It's actually unfair that anybody would get it. And if anyone is lost, it is because of their own choice and their own responsibility. So this is where your mind starts to blow a little bit. And you're like, okay, What's going on here? We have to, we have to get to a point where we are okay 
with there being mystery, with us, with, with us saying like we trust the Bible because we trust it is God's word, but there are things that we don't understand and we will never understand this side of heaven. So we have to accept that. So, so that is what, that is in, in very short summary, that is what scripture says about election. So again, it says that people who choose God do so strictly because God has opened their hearts. On the other hand, people who fail to do so strictly do, strictly do so because they have closed their hearts. Now, now that everyone's confused or sad or mad at me or just wanting to leave, um, I want to try to address uh, a few of the major objections or questions to this, okay? So I hope that um, my goal in this is not to, I can't answer all your questions. So it's not the goal. And the goal is here is not to just get the things lined up in your head right. Really the goal of this is to direct our hearts and worship to God for the amazing plan of salvation that he has initiated for us. But in doing so, I know that there are like a lot of average kind of roadblocks to that and stumbling stones to, to really understanding this. So there's, I'm going to bring up six objections, okay? So track with me, stay with me. Six things, six major objections or questions about election. So the first one, you might ask, isn't election just something that Paul talks about? Is it anywhere else in the Bible? Yes, it is. The Old Testament talks about it. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, God says this, it is not because you are more in number that the Lord set his love on you. He's talking to Israel. So he's saying, why, why did God choose Israel? He said, it's not um, because you're more in number that he set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers. So Old Testament, we've got this. God is selecting a people not based on anything in and of themselves, simply because he loves them, period. New Testament, okay? We've got Peter in 1 Peter 1 through 2 saying, uh, starting out his letter saying, to God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And you've got Luke in Acts 13 uh, talking about the Gentiles who heard the gospel preached. And he said that all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Notice that it doesn't say that all who believed were appointed for eternal life. It's that those who were appointed for eternal life they believed. And then lastly, even Jesus himself talks about election. In John 6, 44, it says, Jesus says this, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So if anyone is seeking God, if anybody seeks God, and that's a lot of us in here, we're seeking God. If anyone is seeking God, it is because God is drawing them. And then Jesus makes this, he, he clinches it. He, he, he finalizes this. And, and if God draws them, I will raise them up. So if, if God is drawing someone to himself, they will be saved and they will be kept. So it's not just Paul that talks about this. So the second op- or, um, objection or question that we might have. So, so but, but doesn't election just complicate everything? Like, doesn't it just make the simple gospel message confusing? and difficult unnecessarily like why is it even brought up but it's actually really the opposite the doctrine of election actually establishes the simple gospel 
Rejecting election actually creates more problems. Because you've only got two options. Either salvation is by grace alone, or it is by something that we do. Something better in those who believe. So um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor and commentator from uh, the last century, he, he's, he's engaging with this. And he's saying, he's talking about act, in, in this scenario in Acts 28, when the gospel is presented, and it says literally, some believed and some didn't. And he asks, Why? Why? When the gospel goes out, everybody just doesn't fall down on their face and, and come to Jesus. Like, some believe and some don't. Why? Well, some might say, well, it's, it's free will. Like, we have the free will to make our own decision. Well, yeah, okay, so if we, we have that free will, but why would one person end up believing and one not? Well, maybe just like this person who believed just took into consideration better than this person and just intellectually things just lined up better for them. Well, yeah, but why? Why did it make more sense to them? And if you keep going further back, you have to get to a point where you eventually say there was something in that person who believed that was better in them than the person who didn't believe. So whether it was they were more humble or they were more moral, they were more open, if you go all the way back to why did they choose to believe and this other person didn't, there's something in that person that made them better And that brings you back to square one of salvation by works. Something in me, I was humble enough to receive this. This person wasn't. So the real differentiating factor and the critical cause of one person's salvation over another's, if if we think that way, is something better than them, better than, uh, I'm sorry, is better in them. In other words, you lack justification by faith and it has to be justification by works. So looking back at Romans 9 and verse 11 through 12, uh, that verse that we just mentioned of the, of the two twins being born, that, that shows that, that lays that out. It was before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad. So you can only have the doctrine of justification by grace through faith if it's built on the foundation of election. I mean, think about it. Think about if it, if it came down to, because really what we're saying is, is it my choice or is it God's choice? If it was my choice to believe, then I can look down on everyone who chooses not to believe and push myself up to be a morally superior human being. And I can look down on them and say, just believe. And if, you, if you're choosing not to, well, it's just because I'm better. There's something better in me. Basically, it comes down to we can actually thinking that way, we can actually lead ourselves to think we can save ourselves and we don't really end up needing Jesus all that much. We just need to be open and humble to receive it and make that choice. So election doesn't complicate the simple gospel. Election actually builds the foundation for the simple gospel to exist, for God to be able to save entirely by grace It has to be of his choosing, of his initiation, of his will. Any other initiative, if it was on our initiative, it's no longer simply by grace. It's a mixture of grace and works. We're cooperating with God instead of him breaking in, finding us when we're dead, and bringing us back to life. So the third objection 
um, or question. If you believe in election, doesn't that leave you with the problem of everybody else? All the other people. Why doesn't God choose to save everybody? And in reality, that is actually a problem that every Christian has. Period. It doesn't matter if you hold to election or you hold, like you hold to God saving people on the basis of election or on the basis of their own choice. Everybody has to deal with the fact that not everybody gets saved. Like God says he is willing. He wants all people to come to the knowledge of him. That is his desire. He has the ability to do that, but he doesn't do it. So talking about election doesn't create that problem. It just causes us to actually think about it. So regardless of whether you think that people are saved by God's choice in election or by our, or by our choice, you still have the problem of why doesn't God save everyone? So why doesn't God save everyone? There's, there's, we, we can't know the full answer, but there are a few things that we can know. Whatever the reason is, it's not random. He has reasons. We just don't know them. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if any of your grandmas uh, make, the, uh, make the blankets, these like homemade blankets that are awesome and really intricate. I don't know if you ever noticed this. My, my grandma made them. Allison's grandma makes them. So we have like a bunch. We just have like too many just in our house. They're everywhere. These grandma blankets. And, you know, on one side, there's this like, it's, it's, it's the backside of the stitching. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really look that nice. There's no colors on it. It's just like these kind of random weird lines. But if you flip it over, the same blanket, it's this beautiful tapestry that grandma put 40 hours into while she was watching Judge Judy. And she gave it to you for Christmas, and you love it. If you flip it over, you see it. That's kind of like what, how we are given through Scripture this God's plan for how this is all working out. We're, we get to see one side of it. We get to see the side that looks kind of weird and really doesn't look all that appealing totally. But what we're trusting is that God knows what he's doing. And we're trusting that we couldn't conceive of a more merciful way to deal with sinners. I mean, if, if you want to say that God doesn't, doesn't save based on, the, on election, you have to bring yourself to say, I am more merciful than God. I have an idea that is more merciful than God. And I don't think that we want to do that. Um, so eventually, we will see the whole plan. Eventually, we'll see it. And, and we won't be able to find fault with it. And it will make sense. And it will be beautiful. And we'll see God's complete, merciful plan. Um, but the other thing, if, I mean, if there's one single reason of why God chooses, why God chose me, it's not very flattering. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, talks about how God um, says that God chose the foolish things out of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak to shame the strong. Goes on to say that he chose the lowly and despised things. So if there's any reason that you're chosen, it's, it's not a very flattering one. It's not like a, he saw something really great in this one. Like I want, you know, I mean, he's actually going after the opposite. If we, if we want a reason, it's because we're lame, basically, uh, and he chose the lowest, even in spite of it. So that's why, um, so that's dealing with the issue of, if, of why God wouldn't save everyone. And if he could, why doesn't he? We trust that he's perfect, we trust that his plan is merciful, and we trust that 
He did not save us because we were strong and wise and high. So the fourth thing, the fourth objection, isn't it unfair? Isn't this all unfair for God to elect some and not others? But, I mean, it really, if, 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 we, if we want to talk fairness, what is fair? We have to ask the question, not why don't, why don't all get saved, but why does anybody at all? I mean, this is where we, this is where we, we have to hit this, allow our hearts to really feel this. This isn't something cold. This is, this is flesh and blood. This is, this is something very real. This is talking about mercy. This isn't talking about God just going like eeny, meeny, miny, moe. God is freely being merciful. And at one point in Romans 9, Paul basically says, because he, he says, one of you will ask, and he basically asks a question like that. He's anticipating that question. And he basically says, who are we to talk back to God? Really, I think that is one thing that our generation really struggles with, is the, the difference between creature and creator. Like, we feel like we're the judge of God, and we can tell him how he is supposed to be. And when we get any slight hint that he might be something other than we think, well, that's, that's dumb. I just cut that out. Go Thomas Jefferson on that mess. Cut it out. Create my own Bible. My own God. And then what you're left with is an idol. It's not God. It's not Jesus. It's not really salvation. It's, it's not the good news. One commentator used this illustration talking about, is it unfair for God to elect some but not others? And he, he talks about how, you know, imagine if you uh, were outside of a bank and you saw these five guys wearing all black and they're around the corner and you can overhear them and they're finalizing their plans to go rush into the bank and, and rob the bank. And so as they start running in, you go over to them to tackle one of them so that they won't do it. Well, what, what ends up happening is you tackle one guy, the other four go in, it gets messy, they end up shooting one of the cops in there, and the guys get convicted and put in prison. The one guy that's free, can he say, the reason I'm free is because I was such a good guy and last minute made a, made a good choice there? No, it's because you restrained him. God, God held us back from pursuing that which we wanted to do. And so this, guys, this is, a, this, is a, this, is a hard, this is a hard one, but this is what we have to see, that those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. God does not force people into hell. We go there willingly, okay? But those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. And that allows us to see that salvation truly is all grace. Guys, this is the, if we want to say, if we really want to bank our lives on salvation by grace, a free gift of God, these are some of the, the weird kind of logical ends that, these, that it leads us to. So it's, it's, we, we shouldn't see it as something that's unfair. But actually, if anything's unfair, it's that God is saving any at all. So the fifth objection. But if everything's just fixed and certain and planned, why pray? Why share the gospel? Why do anything at all? And I think this is, this is based off of a misunderstanding of, of kind of what we've talked about earlier, that we're not robots. We're free. We make decisions. We make choices. But God is sovereign and has a plan over it. But I mean, think about it. If everything wasn't planned by a holy and a loving God, we'd be terrified to wake up every morning. 
Who knows what would happen to us out there in the world? And the pressure for evangelism would be unbearable. I mean, you've got to seal the deal. You've got to present it so perfectly that this person gets it and, and, it's, and clicks. And it's, it's, the weight is on your shoulders. We'd feel that weight so deeply. I mean, but rather, we, we pray and we evangelize to share in God's work with him. I mean, think about it. It's like a, it's like a kid and a dad. They live out on a farm and they've got a wood-burning stove. And the dad says, hey, son, I need you to go outside and chop some wood to get the fire going. But it's snowing and it's cold and the kid doesn't want to do it. And he's thinking like, my dad loves us, so he's not going to let us freeze. So if I don't do it, he's going to end up doing it anyways. Well, yeah, of course, the dad isn't going to let the family freeze because the kids wouldn't go chop the wood. But the point is that the dad wants the son to join in his work. He wants to do it with him, and he wants to do it for him. So we, we get to share in God's work. God wants to work with us and for us. And actually, election actually really motivates evangelism. In Acts 18, verse 9, God tells Paul, he says, go to this city. He says, keep on speaking. And then he says, you're going to get beat. You're going to be persecuted, but keep on speaking. Why? And this is God speaking to him because I have many people in that city. I have many people in that city. And then what does Paul do? He stays there for, for a year and teaches them, knowing that God had people in that city. So we can evangelize. We can share the gospel with confidence because we know that God has people already lined up to come to faith in him. They just need to hear the good news of Jesus. And so the last, last objection or question so I believe the Bible, and I see this teaching of election, and, I'm, and I, don't, I don't quite know. Like, here's the thing. This took me years to come to the conclusion that I'm at. Tonight is not meant to steal the deal for all of you. This is, this is going to raise questions, and that's good, okay? But you're thinking, maybe this is right. Maybe election is right. Why do I have this dislike for it? Like, I don't like this. And it honestly basically comes down to this fact. The reason we dislike the idea of election is because naturally, we're naturally minded. I mean, you think about it, the biblical gospel is supernatural. It combines two realities that natural reason cannot keep together. God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It keeps those two things perfectly together. Eastern religions and Eastern philosophies tend towards what's called fatalism. Fate. It's just, it's fate. It's bound to happen, so no matter what you do, it's going to happen. Good or bad, it's just going to happen. They, and so they really don't believe that humans have any freedom at all. So you've got this hard side over here. This when they hear the gospel, they hear it and just think that, wow, if, this, if the gospel is not what I think, it's just pure human, human responsibility. But then us, Westerners, with, with our Western uh, religions and philosophies, we tend towards individualism. Like nobody trumps the freedom of me, of I. We believe humans have the right and power over their own destiny. And so when we hear the gospel and see that these two things are balanced, we see it and think it's fatalism. We must be robots. But that's not what it's saying. We have to hold both together. We have to be careful and see the nuanced balance in the gospel. It holds both together. So lastly, 
Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Maybe, maybe you've already landed before tonight. Maybe you're kind of landing now. And maybe, you, maybe this sent you off on a million different questions. Regardless of that, why does this matter? Well, one, we don't have justification by faith truly without it. But two, we have profound comfort in life. Like we have comfort that we can't completely mess the whole thing up. We trust that God holds it together and that God truly does work all things together for the good of those who love him. We can trust that it gives us profound comfort in the face of the roller coaster of life. But it gives us also absolute confidence. I mean, think about the placement of this. Romans 9 comes right after Romans 8, where Paul is saying neither life nor death nor Heaven, hell, angels, nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Why can he stand so firmly with such certainty and assurance? Because he trusts that it is entirely of God. It's God's will, God's idea, God's plan, God's initiative. And that is why he can throw himself down on the floor and say, I cannot lose it. And he starts out Romans 9 saying, I wish that I could give it up for my brother's who don't know Jesus, but he knows that he can't. So it gives us profound comfort, absolute confidence, and lastly, it gives us deep communion with God. God doesn't say, I love you because you were smart enough to choose me. He doesn't say, I love you because you were humble enough to choose me. He doesn't say, I love you because you're of service to me. He says, I love you because I love you. He says the same thing to us that he said to his people, people Israel. I love you because I've set my love on you. This is perfect love. And this is a fountain of endless praise. It's, it's, a, it's a well so deep. It, it's, we could never reach the bottom of it. A prayer book called The Valley of Vision has a prayer in it that says this, that I think sums up this whole thing really well. It says, and has some old English in it, so just... We understand it, just some weird words. I was dead in iniquities, having no eyes to see thee, no ears to hear thee, no taste to relish thy joys, no intelligence to know thee, but thy spirit has quickened me, has brought me into a new world as a loved creature. Thou hast drawn me with cords of love. And so... Though in this life, we may only see the back of the tapestry. I pray that your heart is thrilled by the salvation that we have in Christ. The free and permanent and electing love of God for us. Let's pray. Father, we know that we... um, do not know all things. We cannot understand all things entirely. But God, we want to take you at your word. We want to trust you. And God, even though some of this is really hard to digest, we want to receive it because we trust that it is, it is your most merciful plan for sinners. God, we thank you that you do not deal, deal with us fairly, but you deal with us unfairly. You don't give us what we deserve. You give us everything that we don't deserve. So God, I pray tonight as we go out, would you protect our hearts from seeds of doubt? 
Would you protect our, our minds from confusion that would lead us astray from you? But you would do the exact opposite. Your spirit would take um, the words spoken tonight and make them dig a well deep inside of us that makes us marvel and stand in awe and wonder of the great salvation that you've given to us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.